This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with historian Quinita Cobbins Modica of Gonzaga University and BlackPast.org. She tells us about her Columbia piece profiling Seattle school teacher and international peace activist Daisy Tibbs Dawson, and the challenges of researching women of color in the Northwest. I'm like writing the history, but I'm also concerned about preservation, especially Black women's history and narratives here in the Pacific Northwest because there are silences in the archives when it comes to Black women's history. I spoke with Quinita Commons Modica by phone from her office at Gonzaga University in Spokane. Well, thanks for joining us on Columbia Conversations. I'm not sure if people have had a chance to read the article that's in the current issue, but it's our cover story for the spring issue of 2019, and it's about Daisy Tibbs Dawson, right? And how did you first come across the story about Miss Dawson? I came across Daisy Dawson through happenstance. Um, I received a public history fellowship from the history department at the University of Washington to work with a local museum. And at that time, I was working briefly with the Northwest African American History Museum, and they told me about a woman named Daisy Dawson that I might be interested in profiling her story. Um, so I got connected with Daisy Dawson's family or her children, Craig and Deborah, who had been trying to find avenues to get their mother's story told and recognized. And they went to Nam with this particular story. And by me being there, they thought that was the perfect time to uh, actually tell her story. Huh. Yeah, I noticed in you know, in, when we were putting the story together, working with you on that, the, some of the sources you listed were these unpublished interviews that had been conducted um, either at the behest of the family members or somehow through the family. They so they were actually working to sort of preserve their own history in in a way. So um, when Daisy was alive, um, a number of interviewers came to interview her um, to talk about her story. Um, I'm not sure if those interviews, if anything ever came of those interviews, um, but the family had boxes and boxes of information on their mother, and those interviews were a part um, of that collection that they had. And so I think one reporter, um, one person who came with a reporter that did a short story on her, I think it was in Crosscut. Um, but other but other than that, uh, there was some interest in Daisy's later years where uh, interviewers came to do to talk to her about her story. I see. And do you know, and this maybe this question's too inside baseball, but in terms of those the archival materials the family had, those boxes of things, are those headed somewhere to an actual archive or have they already been preserved someplace or are they still with the family? So that is a really great question. So when I first started the project, of course, I could not find Daisy Dawson in a traditional archive. And so, so helpful um, 
to meet with the family because, as it turned out, um, Dawson actually had been collecting material for well over 50 years um, that was stored in the basement. So I had an opportunity to go through all of those boxes, all of those artifacts, newspaper clippings, cards, what have you. Um, and after I finished working on the piece, because as a historian, I'm not just concerned about um, like writing the history, but I'm also concerned about preservation, especially Black women's history and narratives here in the Pacific Northwest, because there are silences in the archives when it comes to Black women's history. And so I encourage the family to think about creating the Daisy Tips Dawson collection um, and transferring or donating her records to the University of Washington, which is her alma mater. And I had worked in the archives there a couple of years ago, and I was really interested um, in how records were being preserved, cataloged, arranged, and things of that nature. And so I contacted the Pacific Northwest curator, as well as the archivist at the University of Washington, got them in contact with the family, and helped to oversee that transfer of, of records. So now the University of Washington in the Special Collections houses the Baby Tips Boston Collection. And so it's available for anyone who's interested in learning more about her. That's great. I'm really glad you did that. And I, I, maybe I haven't asked the question enough. And um, I think that notion of you being interested in telling the story, but also realizing that these records were priceless and invaluable and needed to be housed in a in a, in a regular archive someplace. That's um, mm-hmm. is that? Do you think does that? Are you pretty? Is your approach or your attitude to that? Is that fairly common among someone who's a, a PhD candidate or postdoc or sort of someone in your position who's doing this kind of you know, original research and coming into contact with families and organizations that might have records that aren't in archives, is your sort of commitment to trying to getting the material preserved, is that unusual, do you think? Um, I don't necessarily know if it's unusual, but I do feel a certain calling to do that simply because um, black, women's, black women are one of the most understudied groups in the region, yeah. and by me doing this type of work, I've realized the roadblock um, that I was confronted with is not having accessible um, records that were pretty much available. Um, and so what I realized is that I had to look outside the traditional archives, um, and into the community, connecting with people, and uh, asking to see what they have in their houses. <laughs> what I realized, a lot of people keep their records at home because they necessarily don't know what to do with them or they don't know what archive means or they don't have an understanding of the particular... They know that it's valuable, but they don't know that this information can be used for preservation, that there are repositories, that there are places that house these particular documents for the study of or to preserve the the, the the legacies of people and also of an area of a place and things of that nature. So I don't know if it's really unusual. I don't know anyone who, who was doing it uh, in my department um, in terms of being a graduate student, mm-hmm. but that's something that, you know, is a lifelong project of mine that I, that I do, and I talk to women all over the state about, 
ways that they can preserve the records that they have. And those who are sort of like, you know, middle age, letting them know early, like make sure you keep certain documents, keep certain records. The notion of maybe it's a certain, it's also, it's like, I know this has changed a lot over the last few decades, but I know I used to work at the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, which was created as a Seattle Historical Society back at the turn of the 20th century. And the history they focused on was all sort of, you know, they don't mean this in a crass way, but sort of like rich white people. That was what the history, they had people's pianos and their, their silver sets and their, you know, their nice china and everything. And the notion of being able to, being interested in collecting stories and artifacts and archives of, you know, sort of common people or middle class people or working class people, that's, I think, regardless of color. I mean, I think this is something that was, was not really done until the last couple decades in particular. But um, so in terms of the Pacific Northwest being a place where African-American women are underrepresented in these kinds of archival collections, is that true in other parts of the country? Or are we do we have a, is there a special reason why that would be the case here in the Northwest? Oh, yes, that's, that's a national issue. That's okay. a national problem. International, even. Why is that? Oh, it has a lot to do with, um, of course, racism, not valuing um, African-American, and more broadly, but particularly African-American women's history, um, or their stories. And so because of that, um, that's reflected across the globe um, because of these ideas around racism and also sexism in Black women. They are in the middle of that, the intersection yeah. of gender and race. Yeah, that, yeah, I get that makes sense. And that I, I love this, the connection, the fact that her story includes the aftermath of the bombing in Hiroshima, which is, you know, I think most people or many people in Washington state don't realize the connection between the atomic weapons program during World War II that, you know, which with all the, the plutonium developed at Hanford for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, or the B-29 bomber that was developed in Seattle. I think the one that actually dropped the bombs in Japan was built in uh, in Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. But the technology, that the, the weapon and the delivery of it, so much of it came from the Northwest. And the fact that there were people like um, Daisy Tibbs Dawson willing to join up and go over as volunteers and do this kind of work to help rebuild Hiroshima. I didn't really know about that story. I think I, I it was sort of a, not a surprise to me, but I was, I was, I was pleased to learn of that story. And when the, the research you uncovered and these groups of Americans going over out of, you know, a feeling of um, wanting to create a lasting peace and sort of make up for what had happened in Japan is, that's a pretty neat story. Again, regardless of the color of anybody's skin, it's just cool that that's that it came together that way. Yeah, it, it was a fascinating story to me. Um, one because I hadn't heard anything like that, but I wasn't particularly surprised about it. What it did for me, it further just signified how Black women had featured prominently within the history here, and also being the vanguard of social justice and, and freedom locally, as well as, in her case, internationally. And so um, when I read uh, the 1950 Ebony spread that they did and how they profiled and detailed her every, you know, her day-to-day activities there, it was quite amazing to see that and to see those photos um, of her and how 
um, she tried to adjust to the environment that she was in and what she had experienced and what she saw and the destruction that it did, the dropping of the bomb and the destruction that it did to the people mm-hmm. and how she had a sense of obligation to help because she had friends who were of Japanese descent here from the United States. I think one of her teachers in Alabama was of Japanese descent who mm-hmm. she witnessed um or heard about him being arrested during uh, during World War II and shifted off to an internment camp. So she had a, a personal and moral obligation, I believe, to to go and help and join this peace effort. And do you know, I mean, I know in in Seattle in the late 1950s there was a movement that started at the, I think at the UW campus. There were um, University of Washington professors who were. Um, working against uh, proliferation of atomic weapons. We had a, a big uh, protest event here in the early 1980s called Target Seattle. There was all this sort of anti-nuclear activity that was going on. There were um, The archbishop from the Roman Catholic Diocese was out in a boat trying to stop the Trident submarines from uh, going into the base there over on Hood Canal. Do you know, was, was Daisy Tibbs Dawson involved in any of those 1960s, 70s, 80s anti-nuclear uh, protests? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I didn't read anything like that. Cause I know after she came back, she got married, moved to, moved to Alabama, got married, and then relocated back to Seattle, where she raised a family. Then later in the '60s, became um, a teacher within the Seattle public school system. Yeah. And so, I'm not sure if she was a part of anything like that. Yeah, and since that's interesting. Or I didn't come across anything, okay. or her. Her children didn't say anything about that, that they know of. And, and so based on your experience in, in, in uncovering these different archival materials and, and putting together Daisy Tips Dawson's story, how many other stories are out there like this in Washington in particular? Or, or what, what might still be out there? Or what are you going to work on next? Um, or, or actually, where are you with this story? Are you doing more with this story at this point? Are you working on a longer form published piece? Or what's next for this? No, actually, with this story, I um, condensed it to a 500-600 word um, bibliographic entry. I'm also the historian and associate editor of BlackPast.org. Oh, yeah. And we had a short um, profile of David Dawson on our website. Um, and so we're hoping that that was one avenue of trying to get her story out to a more global public audience. Um, but in terms of her, this was something that um, I felt that needed to be done, is this longer piece, this longer story of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of are there other stories like this, there are so many. There are countless stories. Um, I've just uncovered a hundred year history actually of black women's history here in Seattle, um, going all the way back to the late nineteenth century, um, to the end of the twentieth century. So uh black women have always um been at the forefront of social change and especially here in Seattle. Um it wasn't a, a racial paradise for them once they arrived here and those who were born here. And so they they were always committed to making Seattle more equitable, more inclusive, and more representative. Um, 
they continue to make concessions for their communities. They continue to develop institutions and, and sustain those institutions and those communities. They continue to raise families, um, to work and live here. And so these her her story is just one of many. Um, and it represents the multifaceted experiences of black women here in the region. And so uh, there's there's a lot more to be discovered. Uh, there's a lot more to, to learn about um, the role that black women have played in this region. These are great stories, and our, I know our readers love it. And um, it's really wonderful to meet you on the phone like this for Columbia Conversations. So thanks again for joining us for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Felix, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you to Quinita Cobbins Modica for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Her article about Daisy Tibbs Dawson appears in the spring 2019 issue of Columbia Magazine. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.